0: Okay, well, welcome everybody to the first um, live streamed uh, cutting edge um, uh, uh, discussion this year. We're a little out of practice, having done this all through the pandemic. We're coming back because the Zoom sessions that we're having over the next, this week and the next two weeks after this, are allow us to tap into fabulous scholars and practitioners from around the world. And therefore, today we have a uh, a really interesting panel discussion uh, talking about the debt and climate change precipice. How can the global majority cope? And I have to say that this, even the title of this session, as well as the content that we're now going to speak to. Was really collaboratively devised by the speakers we've invited, so I like this when it happens. Um, and so we're we're joined by Jayati Ghosh, who's a very famous development economist has really contributed enormously to our our um, discipline. She's a professor of economics at Amherst uh, in Massachusetts. For part of the year, she's speaking to us from Delhi. Um, Uh, the land of her origin, and we're very grateful that you're joining us, Jayati, so late in the evening. And we're also joined by Ndongo uh, 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 Ndongo Sambasila, who is um, from the International Development Economics Associates, based in Dakar in Senegal, and Sanudong plaisir. Um, And and finally, we have Kevin Watkins here, uh, who is joining us from my office, sitting next to me, Uh, and Kevin is a uh, a professor, visiting professor at the Furage Lodgy Africa Center at the school. And he is um, former director of Save the Children Fund of the Overseas Development Institute. And when I knew him uh, way back when when he was a very young man, he was doing very important cutting-edge research on the common agricultural policy in Europe and has never stopped since then engaging in really important policy-oriented research. So we're delighted to have all three of you. The speakers will speak for 20 minutes each. Now that we're on Zoom, I can mute you after your 20 minutes is up, and then we'll go into the Q&A. We are expecting that the students sitting in the room will ask questions, and you'll be able to come up to the microphone near the machine, maybe form a queue if you want to ask questions from there. Uh, And of course, please raise your hand or even better, type into the chat if you're if you're signed in online uh, to tell us that you have a question, and then you can put on your camera and your mic and ask your question. I hope that's all clear. The session is being recorded, so everybody knows. Um, and I think and and we're also live streaming to YouTube. Uh, there'll be a recording available afterwards, a blog post, um, and um, as well a uh, podcast I think of this session. So without further ado we're gonna we're gonna begin with Kevin.
1: Thank you James. Can I yes Can I... okay Can we, we, have... we want to share the screen eh? so um, we do
0: that right here if we go back to Zoom and share screen it's this one. We'll share and we'll put it on full screen like that.
1: Okay, take it away, Kevin. Great, thank you, James. And it's really great to be here with all of you and to be sharing this platform with JRT and Ndongo. And and I, I do think the issue that we're discussing. Today, you know, of all the many issues in international development that really matter, this one to me really stands out. And it stands out for a couple of reasons. Actually, when I first met James, which I I think uh, we were both younger than James, in in the (laughs) mid 80s, one of the big issues on the agenda at that time was the debt crisis in Latin America and the debt crisis in Africa. Uh, And here we are, 35 years later, discussing the same type of problems in the context of a world that is failing to address what is probably the greatest challenge facing humanity. Not probably, but the greatest challenge facing humanity, which is that of climate change. Uh, I think it was Marx who coined the phrase that history repeats itself. First, as tragedy and then as farce. We had the tragedy in the 1980s and the 1990s. The farce uh, with tragic consequences will be if we can't resolve the debt crisis that we're facing now. Uh, James, can you just tell me how do I move uh, Just do it with these errors. So, um, I, I wanted to start with. Uh, a bunch of propositions which I really want you to hold in mind that are relevant for all of what I'm going to say and I suspect will have some relevance to what J.R.T. and Andongo say. Mm -hmm. The first point is an obvious one. Not all debt is bad and sustainable debt is actually a critical source of development finance. Sustainable debt is what built the sewer system in London. Sustainable debt is what has created infrastructure across many countries in the world. It's also the case that there is no resolution to the climate crisis that does not involve the mobilization of sustainable and affordable debt, public and private debt. The International Energy Agency's estimation of the finance gap for making a green transition consistent with the Paris agenda is around 3 trillion US dollars by 2030. That mobilization will not happen without properly functioning mm. debt markets. Uh, a third proposition is that debt markets, if you look at them historically, are prone to crises, to weak governance, and to delayed response. And when crises strike, inevitably it's creditor interests that take precedence over the public good and in the way that debt problems are addressed when they emerge power matters and power is one of the things uh, that i think is going to figure quite prominently in this discussion Um, fifth point delayed action on debt relief has devastating consequences for development, consequences that cut across many generations. And in some ways, I'll come back to this point, we are today living with the consequences of delayed action on debt in the 1980s and the 1990s. Uh, Sixth point, uh, there is no question, and I'll set the evidence out on this in a moment, we are in another debt crisis, and, and I'm going to explain the dimensions of that crisis shortly. And finally, failure to act quickly and decisively on this crisis will derail the Paris Agreement with devastating consequences for people and planet. I put a quote on the left-hand side of this first slide, which uh, was actually uh, from a speech that has nothing at all to do with climate change, but with civil rights in the United States from Martin Luther King, where he said, we are confronted with a fierce urgency of now. In this unfolding conundrum of life and history, there is such a thing as being too late. This is no time for apathy or complacency. This is a time for vigorous and positive action. That could be a statement on climate change. Um, I I want to illustrate the historical points I made by reference to two debt episodes, uh, what what I call a a two-part horrible history of debt. The first from Africa. Um, To set the scene, some of you will be familiar with a speech that Julius Naireri made in London in 1986, where he addressed the creditor community. And he, he asked what was a very simple question must we starve our children to pay our debts? And the answer he got back was a resounding yes from the creditor community. The background to that crisis, I'm not going into details here, but I want to set the tone because I think it's relevant to our our current situation, um, was an increase in borrowing in Africa in the 1970s, especially from uh, the credit agencies of bilateral donors in G7 countries in particular uh, and commercial credit guarantees, followed by a rise in interest rates in the late uh, 1970s, deteriorating terms of trade, which led to the debt crisis that Nairairi was responding to. Now, what was the response to this? Well, we had 20 years of what was described as flow rescheduling. That is to say, the debt problem was treated as a liquidity crisis. And the way to deal with the liquidity crisis was to just stretch out the repayment of the debts, including arrears, to roll uh, arrears on debts into the principal uh, and to push that forward, and to ensure that governments were able to repay creditors, essentially through structural adjustment programs. Uh, These were programs that squeezed the domestic economies of Africa in order to transfer resources to the creditor community. In other words, the leveraging of the IMF and the World Bank in order to secure creditor interests, to remind you of the point I made about power. The the effect of those um, nearly 20 initial years with debt indicators progressively worsened. Health budgets were cut. Africa suffered some of the biggest reversals in education in history, and a 25% reduction in per capita incomes, with the income level of 1980 per capita wasn't actually restored until 2002. Uh, We had the heavily indebted Poor Countries Initiative in two parts, the first in 1996, the second, which really brought the curtain down on that phase of the debt crisis in 2006. The the key point I'm making here is that the time lag between the identification of the problem and its consequences for ordinary people uh, and action was around a quarter of a century. That's the first point um second episode of the horrible there has to be a good publication in this idea of the horrible history of debt actually now i think of it but this is the horrible history of debt part two uh for latin america now uh, again really to give a very shorthand version of the background to the crisis this was um initiated by the recycling of petrodollars with uh, the oil price increases of the 1970s through US banks. In 1982, um, which was the year Mexico defaulted, the Latin American debt stood at 327 billion US dollars. That was up from 159 billion just four years earlier. If you took the nine largest US banks, uh, Latin American debt amounted to around 176% of their capital. So this was a direct threat to the banking system of the United States. And it was really triggered by the Volcker Plan in the US, which was about squeezing inflation out of the US economy through higher interest rates. So that was the backdrop to the debt crisis. What was the response? Uh, We first had the Baker Plan, which was a sort of version, if you like, of those liquidity plans in Africa that I mentioned, which was based on additional lending for liquidity to secure repayments, uh, allied to structural adjustment programs, followed several years later in the late 1980s by the Brady Plan which essentially worked from a secondary market for Latin American bonds to uh, where the, the Fed essentially forced US banks to accept a discount. A discount, by the way, after they had profited very handsomely from uh, the structural adjustment programs, which had transferred resources uh, to the shareholders of American banks. What were the effects? This period is often described as a lost decade for Latin America. It wasn't a lost decade. It was a lost quarter century. Poverty rates went from um, 40 to 48% of the population in just a decade. And again, per capita incomes didn't return to 1980 levels until 2004. The time lag in this case for action on debt was shorter around 12 years, but the consequences of the crisis lasted much longer, as I said, uh, a a quarter of a century. Now, where are we now with the current debt crisis? And uh, 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 at one level, we're back where uh, we started with both of these crises. We've had a period of rising real interest rates, which came with the unwinding of COVID measures. Uh, The longer term backdrop has been a shift in the debt profile of low income and uh, low income countries in particular, with the rise of sovereign bond debt and Chinese debt, uh, prompted in turn by a chronic shortage of development finance, in many cases as well by weak and opaque debt management. I've put the indicators. Here, which I'm not going to go into, which does tell you something about how the debt crisis has hit economies. I the the Ida eligible countries, the poorest countries, now have debts of just over one trillion, double the level in 2012. Uh, sorry, have I got five minutes left? Five minutes. Yeah. Okay. Um. The the, the these. Slides. Again, I'm not going to go into the detail here, but if you look at the top slide and you look at the green slice of the top slide, that's the emergence of euro bond debt. The, this is a graph of sub-Saharan Africa. It's for debt servicing. And it gives you a sense of the way in which the servicing of euro bond debt, that is sovereign debt owed by governments, is now dominating debt pro- debt profiles. The lower graph, gives you a, a profile of Chinese debt. I think we're going to come back to this in discussion, James. So I'm not going to go into it in detail. But Chinese debt is a complicated beast. It ranges from highly concessional to non-concessional. But this is the sort of mix of debt which is at the heart of the current crisis. What's the, the critical point about those debt numbers? is not what the IMF and the World Bank tend to focus on, which is the debt-to-GDP ratio or even the debt-to-export ratio. It's the way in which debt servicing is crowding out investments in other areas, uh, in education and in health. You can see that very clearly in the top graph, where debt servicing has now overtaken health expenditure and is approaching education levels. And this crowding out point is actually critical for crisis for, uh, for climate finance, because if you look at the investment needs for Africa in particular, for adaptation financing, you're talking around uh, 50 billion a year minimum by 2030. If you look at the wider requirements for a green transition, you're talking around 180 billion annually by 2030. Those investments cannot happen with the current debt profiles of sub-Saharan African countries. What does the response look like this time? I I wish I had a little bit longer here, but uh, these are really quick points to summarize. We first of all uh, had during the COVID period what was called the debt service suspension. Kevin, I'm
2: happy to give you five of my minutes, so please carry on. I think it's important. That's
1: super kind, but that's (laughs) the level of redistribution. (laughs) I I won't take Jati. I I really don't (laughs) want to eat into your into your, yeah, I, I'll literally be three minutes yeah, there, if that's okay. The, the debt service suspension initiative was not a debt relief initiative. It was essentially a deferral of debt repayments uh, of around 13 billion US dollars. But the, the, the these are payments that have now just been rolled into principle uh, and will still be repaid. The common framework, as it's called, which is the mechanism for providing debt relief on a country by country basis, only four countries have so far applied. Only one of those countries has actually received any form of debt relief, and, which is Chad. And the relief that was provided was negligible. There are three problems with this approach. The, the first is a collective action problem. Uh, so you have different groups of you have bondholders who refuse to participate. And then you have arguments between bondholders, uh, China, and various groups of commercial creditors over who should take the hit. Um, So that's blocked progress. Uh, I've I've mentioned the, uh, I've I've named some of the, the, the big commercial bondholders here. A second critical point is that if governments choose to seek debt relief under the common framework, they pay a high price. I put a quote here where President William Ruto of Kenya uh, made an appeal during a a spring meeting for a a debt relief architecture. And the immediate effect, like within hours, was that the basis points on Kenya's bond went up to the highest level in four months. So in other words, if you seek debt relief, you will pay a price in markets. Um, Now, what do we do? Uh, about the problem. This is the last slide. Um, I, the, 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 I I put this as a bit of a challenge to everyone. In the 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 verb that we use in the title of the um, for this series is cope. How should the majority cope? Well, the answer is we shouldn't be talking about coping. We should be advocating uh, and campaigning for change. Or as Bob Marley would have put it, get up, stand up, and Uh, I I think there are several parts of this. First of all, it needs mobilisation. The HIPPIC initiative didn't happen out of the kindness of the creditor community or the insights of the IMF and the World Bank. It happened because of a mass global campaign linked to strong evidence. Second, we need new movements that are making the links from debt to climate change, linking climate activists in the global south to shareholder activists linked to the the holders of the bonds. There's a fantastic organization called Make My Money Matter. I'd really recommend you go and look at their website, which is about making links between pension funds and the market managers who are making the investments in climate change and holding to ransom the indebted countries I mentioned earlier. Uh, Fourth point. Uh, We need to name the actors, Uh, a lot of you in the lecture theatre are going to be too young to remember this, but the picture there uh, on the left is, do you know who that is,
0: James? Um,
1: Yeah, Uh, I'll give you a clue, It's Paul Newman Newman and Robert Redford, it's the last scene in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, where they're about to be shot down by a group of people who have been hunting them for ages and they can't work out who these people are. And the last line of Paul Newman in the film is, who are these guys? Well, these guys are BlackRock, Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan, (laughs) PIMCO. They have names, they have organizations, they have shareholders. We need to name them and campaign uh, against them. Um, Last two points. There is no substitute for a debt architecture that covers all groups of creditors and forces all groups of creditors to accept lower claims uh, in order to restore debt sustainability. Uh, And we need to look beyond what is this new fad for what are called debt for climate swaps, which typically mobilise very small amounts of money on on not particularly advantageous terms while failing to tackle the systemic debt crisis. What we need is a systemic debt crisis resolved in order to free up the fiscal space that governments need to tackle the climate crisis. Thank you very much. Kevin,
0: thank you very much for that. I'm going to just stop sharing that. Um, And I think really that historical perspective is invaluable as we go on to talk about the situation we face today. And you've already shown that by already outlining some of the elements for action. Ndongo, can I call on you now to Turn on your camera and if you have slides, you can share the screen. Yes, um, let me
3: share them, um, okay.
0: Very good, and okay. if you click on the full, on the, um, the little symbol down on the bottom there to make it a full screen presentation.
3: That's it, great. Okay. Uh, So uh, thank you very much for the invitation. I'm really happy to be here and to have the pleasure to share uh, this panel with uh, Jayati and Kevin and to tackle a very important topic. Uh, My intervention will be about the African external debt problem Uh, I will try to share uh, some thinking about it. Uh, Three type of questions. Uh, First, uh, what we can learn from the preceding debt crisis in Africa during the 1980s and 1990s. I think this has been covered by by Kevin in his presentation. Uh, What happened afterwards during this period of Africa rising, uh, I will try to show that well the way the african debt crisis was handled uh at the end of the 1980s created uh, the current debt crisis to some extent and i'll try to show that with, with with the case of zambia uh one aspect is uh uh the critical role played by foreign tech investment and when we talk about foreign tech investment is productive investment not uh a financial investment but uh investors that uh, buy companies, uh, uh, create new companies, uh, create uh, new equipments, etc. cetera. Uh, and uh, in the case of Africa, the foreign deck investment have been playing a role that went unnoticed. And my thesis is that uh, for most African countries, which are resource rich, commodity rich, uh, the origin of the debt crisis lies in the behavior of the foreign tech investment as foreign tech investment is the main source of export income and generally the export income have been heavily biased towards foreign investment and it is sad that when we talk about debt crisis generally speaking in africa we are not uh, highlighting this aspect i'll try to do that and i will finish with some implications regarding the needed reform of the international financial economic and financial system uh, this graph uh, derives from the World Bank. Uh, on blue, you have the real GDP growth. And in orange, you have the uh, external debt uh, GDP ratio. So the external debt is debt denominated in a foreign currency. There are very interesting things here that highlight the structural um, character of African indebtedness. Uh, we could summarize it quickly. Uh, we have, uh, I, I mean, uh, two first decades where you had high growth, for example, between 1960 and 1970s. That was also the case between 2000 and 2010. You have high growth because uh, you have uh, uh, good terms of trade. Uh, when the terms of trade decline, uh, governments will want to uh, maintain economic growth, so they will grow more, more money and they will borrow uh, in foreign currency, and so they will expose themselves. And when you have uh, first a decline in terms of trade and the cost of international finance increases, you have a debt crisis. And that's what happened uh, at the end of the 1970s, and you had uh, two decades of structural adjustment plans, 1980 to 90, and 1990 to 2000. And you could see in this graph that this period of so-called structural adjustment plans were the periods where uh, GDP, real GDP growth was the lowest. 1.2 in the 1980 decade and 2.1 between 1990 and 2000. And you could see that also during this period, the external debt stock uh, did not decrease. Uh, In fact, uh, it was just stabilized. And this shows that uh, the goal of structural assessment plans is not to diminish you know, the foreign debt, et cetera. It's not to create economic growth, it's to kill economic growth, to kill development uh, because uh, the debt, uh, the external debt GDP ratio declined only uh, during the 2000s. And this was due to two main factors. The first was that the debt was canceled to some extent. I mean, the official debt, uh, uh, Kevin talked about uh, HIPC and also the multilateral debt relief initiative that helped uh, diminish the external debt, debt GDP ratio. But the thing is also, there had been a supper commodity cycle that started from the mid-2000s. That's what explained uh, this uh, drop in the external debt GDP ratio between the 2000 and 2010. But after uh, the supper commodity cycle was started to be over, uh the government started to increase uh their foreign indebtedness and in this case as we will see they relied more on international financial markets so that means that uh uh due to the economic specialization of african countries they have been strongly dependent on their patterns of economic growth from uh commodity prices uh and when commodity prices are low generally they try to sustain growth by increasing their foreign indebtedness and when you have um, a global environment characterized by high cost of finance, high interest rates, you will have debt crisis. And that was the scenario. So that means that uh, COVID-19 itself does, did not create a debt distress. The debt distress was inscribed in the ec- economic pattern of accumulation of African countries. And we will see that. You could see here, for example, that between uh, 2010 and 2019, Uh, All the external solvency indicators for sub-Saharan Africa uh, uh, was declining. For example, the external debt stocks to exports ratio went from 79% to 165, and after it increased a bit. Same thing for the debt service to exports ratio from 5% to 17. That means it um, increased threefold. And the uh, external reserves to debt stocks also decreased 48% to 22%. So that means even before the pandemic, we were seeing that uh, African countries were on a path of uh, increased uh, uh indebtedness and also uh lower capacity to to repay their debt so what they needed only to be in debt distress is a change in the global environment lower prices for the commodities and this has been the first effect of the covid-19 on africa and after increases in prices and global inflation etc increase, increases in um and uh, accessing to uh, 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 international uh, capital markets. Here you could see the evolution of the public and publicly guaranteed external debt stock in Africa, PPG debt. So you could see that uh, it mostly tripled between 2010 and 2022. It went from 169 billion US dollar in 2010 to 471 20, in 2022 for uh, Sub-Saharan Africa. And you will see that the composition of this foreign debt changed a lot. Uh, before, let's say in 2010, uh, something around two-thirds of the debt, the foreign debt stock was official, multilateral and bilateral. But by 2019, uh, one-third of the debt was uh held by bondholders that means uh, investors who bought the Euro bonds, the Euro obligations uh, issued by African governments. Uh, the share of the commercial banks and others has stayed more or less the same. The share of commercial banks have been higher, let's say during the 1970s, etc. Uh, so as Kevin said, uh, it has been very difficult to uh, restructure uh, the debt in this current context due uh, to the behavior of European holders. And African governments generally, they uh, issued these Euro bonds because uh, at that time also it was the aftermath of the uh, great financial crisis. And so there were a lot of liquidity and uh, so-called uh, uh, emerging markets were uh, destinations that were promising Uh, For investors, they could have access to uh, to yields, to returns that they could not obtain in the global north. At the same time, for African governments, it was a way of uh, um, uh, financing themselves without the conditionalities you would find with the IMF, World Bank, or sometimes some some countries. And so there was also this context of commodity boom that also created this uh, this, uh, euphoria uh, about the the euro bonds and you could see that uh, during this period the debt service also increased a lot it went from 10 billion us dollar annually to 41 billion in 2019 and 43 percent, 43 billion in 2022 uh, the thing is when you issue debt in a foreign currency when you issue euro bonds uh, generally you are subject to market conditions and uh, when interest rates are low it could be Interesting, it depends, but whatever the case, uh, the thing is African countries uh, generally they suffer from what has been called the African premium, in the sense that their governments often pay an extra unjustified cost. And this had been estimated at 2.9 percent uh, by two economists, Michael Olabisi and Owat in their paper, Sovereign Bond Issues, do African countries pay more to borrow? And for the period 2008 to 2014, they said that this African premium implied 2.2 billion US dollar loss for African governments. And you have same results with the paper by uh, Ipolit Forfak. There have been a recent UNDP report uh, showing how the cost of finance in Africa is increased by the by credit rating agencies. And they say that the full cost of credit rating idiosyncrasies for 16 African countries that issued Eurobonds is estimated to be 75 billion in excess interest and foregone funding for the countries. This amount is nearly 12% more than all of Africa's net official development assistance in 2020. And they added that this amount represented 80% of Africa's annual infrastructure investment needs. So that means that the cost of finance is uh, weighing heavily on African development. But this is not the only aspect. Another aspect I would like to insist is the profit and dividend repatriations by foreign direct investment. Uh, those who uh, buy African eurobonds, they uh, they are paid interest payments. Uh, but interest payments are different from the uh, profit and dividend repatriated by companies installed in the, in African countries. For example, uh, companies that exploit oil, gas, uranium, etc and sometimes the supermarkets, et cetera. So here we see in this graph, we have three indicators. We have the uh, primary income on FDI, that is the returns on FDI, profit and dividend repatriation, uh, mostly. Uh, You have the total interest payments on all external debts, private and public. And you have the public and public guaranteed debt service. And you could see that uh, from 2006 with the commodity boom, we saw a huge increase of primary income on FDI. Uh, it started from 2007 uh, until let's say 2018. And you could see throughout this period, uh, the primary income, the returns on FBI have been higher than total interest payments on external debt. And between 2007 and 2017, uh, the primary income has been systematically higher than the external debt service. And uh, this graph, uh, you know, is derived from the World Bank data, and it uh, concerned uh, thirty African countries uh, representing something like more than seventy-five percent of African GDP. This is huge, and uh, for me, this explains partly why African countries are into debt distress. Because if all these, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, flows of uh, profit and dividend repatriate abroad were instead. Uh, Invested in Africa, for example, in agriculture, in the industry, uh, for uh, food uh, self sufficiency, for energy self sufficiency, for industrialization, uh, African countries would not need to issue debt in foreign currency because generally you need to issue debt in foreign currency because you want to have access to real goods to, uh, for, for your own development. But uh, that has not been the case, and generally people, uh, when they talk about the debt in Africa, they do not factor in this aspect, and it's really important. And the case I generally uh, give as an example is Zambia, because Zambia in to- uh, 2020 was the first country that defaulted on a 42.1 billion coupon payment on 1 billion euro bonds maturing in 2024. And the Zambian case is interesting because the current Zambian debt crisis, for me, uh, is an outcome of the way its preceding debt crisis at the end of the 1990s was handled by the IMF and the World Bank. Between 2026, uh, 2006, the external public and public guarantee debt stock of Zambia declined from 4.4 billion, 128% of gross national income, to 0.86 uh, billion, so that means 7 4% of GNI. So that was a decrease of the external public and public guarantee debt of 80%. But this restructuring by the IMF, World Bank, and so on, was conditional on the privatization of the copper sector for the benefit of Canadian mining companies that also enjoyed favorable tax and legal terms. With the commodity boom, the FDI income skyrocketed, deteriorating first the primary income account. Uh, And so we could see that the cumulated uh, FDI income flows from 2000 to 2005 stood at 1 billion compared to 5.5 billion for the period 2006, 2010. Between the 2020 trend, cumulated FDI income flows reached 10.5 billion versus 2.7 billion for interest payments on the external public and public guarantee debt and 5.5 billion for the PPG external debt service. As for the PPG debt stock, it was relatively low until 2012 to 12% of GNI, but between 2013 and 2019 it increased threefold in absolute terms from 3 billion to 99 billion, so that means that during this period, despite the copper boom. Zambia has not been accumulating foreign foreign assets because if Zambia had accumulated foreign assets, Zambia would have been uh, would less need to issue a euro bonds or debt in foreign currencies. And the thing is also, when they took the debt, the debt was not used in a way that would uh, itself uh, create future foreign income. And this is only part of the story because another story is illicit financial flows because uh, the transfer of dividends of any profits is also associated with illicit financial flows and I call it real resource theft. And we have some estimate, but when you compare this estimate since 1970 to now, you could see that what has been stolen to these countries is higher than the uh, external debt stock, for example, of uh, of Zambia in 2021, for example. So that means that there are many countries who are you know, underdeveloped, who are commodity rich, but they should never be in debt crisis if there were Managing well their export income, if they had very uh, let's say fair tax agreements, etc., they would not need to issue so much debt in in foreign currency. And Zambia is a perfect case order. And the IMF in one of its latest report on Zambia said this: uh, Zambia balance of payments has historically been characterized by large leakages in the form of sizable private sector asset held abroad. These outflows average about one-third of copper exports over the last five years and have been as high as 20% of GDP in 2012 and 2014. These outflows have largely offset the significant FDI inflows of the early 2010s and contributed to the gradual depletion of reserves before the 2021 SDI allocation. And the report added that 50 to 90% of copper export in 20, between 2020 and 2021 were not repatriated. So Zambia, countries like Zambia should have never been in debt distress if they have a, a control over the export sector and also control over the export income. So I will conclude by saying that for the time being, the only way African countries can avoid the foreign debt in the current circumstances, that means being a commodity producer and facing the international payment problem. What I call the international payment problem is that you need to have access to US dollar to buy imports you need. And unfair tax agreements is among others to have higher fiscal and technical control over the export sectors, continuing to export their fossil fuels and other attractive commodities for hopefully their own benefit. Because it's not that you are commodity dependent that you should be in debt, distress or poor countries like, Guinea, like uh, uh, I Guinea at one point or Libya, they did not have any significant foreign debt because they had a national control over their oil sector, but that's not the case of most African countries. So clearly the current international financial system is not working for developing countries, especially the commodity dependent ones. So for them, it would be economically suicidal uh, to abandon the extractive industries without significant resource transfers because they would be in debt distress. So in other words, uh, contributing to first a global climate distress is the main option out of debt distress that the current global system offers to the commodity rich countries who we can find in Africa. The thing is the global North countries as a whole could afford to cancel the external public and public guarantee debt stock of African countries. I would even go further by saying that all the countries, the 133 countries, um uh, uh ranked by the world bank as low and minor income countries if you uh exclude china india uh and uh, russia uh their external debt stock in 2022 uh was lower than the uh external and then the debt debt stock the public debt stock of germany so that means that the global north countries could afford to provide significant uh uh debt relief so the issue is not whether they could afford it financially. The issue is uh, whether they have the political will. And so far, they did not show any political will. And I think the point is to, to shine that. Thank you very much.
0: thank you very much uh, for that, which gives us a, a, a view, really a, quite a comprehensive view of how debt has emerged and increased and styming development and action on climate in Sub-Saharan Africa. Jayati, over to you.
2: Thank you very much, James. And what a pleasure it is to come after Kevin and Dongo because they've said everything that needs to be said. And uh, so, you know, I have much less to actually uh, talk about, but I want to actually bring the focus specifically onto climate finance. And to do that, I'm going to just show you a couple of slides to begin with, just to give you a sense, but not uh, spend too long on these. I really want to get into just talking about it really. So how do I get into slideshow from the beginning? There we go. Yeah. So just, this is just to give you a sense about, mind you, I hate actually thinking about everything in terms of GDP, because that's not the point. There will be people dying, there will be children starving and all kinds of other things happening. But What's worthy of note is that uh, the countries that are really responsible for most of the problem, uh, the carbon emissions that we have for today, uh, which is Western Europe, North America, are not going to be so badly affected. They're relatively less affected. And it is the countries we've already been talking about in sub-Saharan Africa and Latin America and South Asia, Southeast Asia, that are the much more dramatically affected if you do this in terms of UNICEF's estimate of the estimated child deaths, it's even more stark. It really does come up as a sort of very clear north-south divide. Here's another way of looking at it. This is from the Carbon Inequality Report brought out by the Paris World Inequality Lab. And um, this is something that, oh my goodness, what's happening? I'm so sorry. Some some. Yeah. So this this is really talking about the the rich and the poor globally rather than just within countries. Because remember, we have rich people also in China and India and uh, Brazil and South Africa and so on and so forth, less, but we still have them. But if you look at the bottom 50% of the global population, they have been responsible for 3% 3% of the carbon emissions, or they currently are responsible for 3% of the carbon emissions. However, they will bear 75% of the relative losses. And they have very little capacity to finance. They have only 2% capacity to finance. Who has all the capacity to finance? The top 10%. They can. They have 76% of the capacity to finance. They're responsible for almost half of the emissions and their relative losses are negligible. Okay, they hardly do anything. The middle is uh, predictably in the middle. But again, they've been much more responsible for emissions than the bottom half of the global population. Just another expression of the extreme inequality that uh, is expressed also in climate terms today and all reflects what Kevin was talking about in the beginning, the relative power. But just in terms of climate finance, you know, we're always told about how countries are going to finally end up giving the hundred billion dollars they promised. I don't know if you all remember, but the rich countries uh, had been promising that they would give a hundred billion dollars in climate finance to the rest of the world. And uh, this still hasn't been met. The latest number they're claiming is eighty six billion dollars. But. In fact, even this is a massive overestimate. Why? Because we don't have a definition of climate finance. There is actually no globally accepted definition of climate finance. And that's quite ridiculous because you have a COP every year, right? And in these COPs, you talk about everything that relates to climate finance, but we still can't get an agreement to define it. And why can't we get that agreement? Well, look at the kinds of things that are passing for climate finance. This is a Reuters investigation. Italy gives a subsidy for a company to open chocolate stores and gelato stores across Asia. Now, I don't know, is that adaptation? Maybe you can cope with the heat when you get to eat ice cream? US actually does coastal hotel expansion in Haiti, which is extremely uh, affected by rising sea levels. So to do coastal hotels there is already a bit crazy, but they're claiming that these hotels are going to be more uh, impervious to rising sea levels. Belgium decided that it could actually have a film about uh, a couple in an Argentine rainforest. And rainforest, right, what's not to like? That's very pro-climate, and therefore that's part of climate finance. Japan actually finances a new coal plant, the dirtiest form of fossil fuel in Bangladesh, and says, well, you know, this is going to be a greener version of coal production than the existing version. It also finances airport expansion in Egypt. So uh, on the grounds, remember, this is another major source of fossil fuel burning. And the fact that we're proliferating airports is really a problem in terms of dealing with the, the mitigation. So basically anything goes. You can use green technology. You can claim you're using green technology. Again, not clearly defined. And if it is, then that's climate finance even when it comes in the form of very expensive loans. So that's the other aspect of this 86 billion that we're supposed to be giving getting right now, that a lot of it is actually loans. More than half of it is loans rather than straightforward grants. And I think Ndongo has already told you how that can be a problem. I just want to come back to debt a little bit and talk about one aspect of this inequality which both... Uh, Um, Kevin and Ndongo mentioned, but it's just, you know, it's so stark what happened during the COVID-19 pandemic. So here is the general government gross debt as a percentage of GDP during, just before, during, and after the pandemic, okay? The rich countries have very large volumes of government debt to GDP, above 100%. It goes up massively in the pandemic year to 123% comes down a little bit, but still stays well above 100%. The middle-income countries have a much more uh, moderate uh, thing. Theirs goes up a little bit, but it's still 66% only in the pandemic year, and it goes up slightly after that to 68%. The low-income countries have a really low debt-to-GDP ratio. Now, remember, these are the countries in debt stress. The low-income countries, half of them are already in debt distress. Despite having these really low debt to GDP ratios, which barely go up during the pandemic and then stay flat thereafter. And what does that mean? It means they're spending less. Let me give you just a quick comparison so you realize what that means. During the period between January 2020 and March 2021, the United States government spent an additional $30,000 per person as stimulus an additional $30,000 per person, okay? That's what they spent. The low-income countries all together as a group, what did they spend? They spent $2 additional per person, which means obviously they couldn't do proper health spending. They couldn't do real social protection. They couldn't do anything. They couldn't even do the kind of spending you need to make the economies revive. And that's very telling. Now, why did they do this? Because they're terrified of the capital markets because they have these bond markets And their bond prices will collapse and the spreads will rise if they do anything that is seen as misbehaving fiscally. So they're all terrorized and they all behave themselves. Does that behavior pay off? Well, look at the right-hand side. These are the spreads on sovereign debt over the U.S. Fed rate. The advanced economies have a spread of less than 0.1%. I'm not joking. There's a spread of less than 0.1% basis points, and it does not go up through this period. But the middle and low-income countries, the ones that have been so well-behaved, look at what's happening to their spreads. They go up to first 500 basis points, 700 basis points, and it's not because they are being so-called bad, right? It's because risk perceptions mount whenever there are global problems, the risk is palmed off onto the poorer countries. And therefore, they automatically end up having to have higher spreads, pay more on on their loans. Uh, so that their debt will go up, or their interest burden will go up, even when they haven't taken on new debt, even when they haven't spent more. Some of the highly indebted countries, their spreads went up to 1,100 basis points in this period. So these are the kinds of inequalities that are worth bearing in mind in this um, in this discussion, which I think has already come out very clearly in in what. Kevin and Ndongo have been saying. Now, what does this tell us in terms of how you now deal with this problem? What's the way the world is dealing with it now? And how how are we getting climate finance? Are there any schemes? The big thing, the very fashionable thing that is talked about a lot is debt for nature swaps or debt for climate swaps. And they sound good, right? What's not to like? After all, it'll help the nature, it'll help the climate, it'll help the planet. And it'll reduce debt. So developing countries that have various debt issues, they're supposed the de- the uh, creditor countries are supposed to relieve them of some of that debt, to reduce some of that debt take a take a haircut in return for some measure like let's say reforestation or you know carbon capture through other means or some other thing that would benefit the climate. And in return, then they will get this, this benefit. It turns out that these are so small, so irrelevant, that they do nothing. The monitoring is worse than useless. There are many other methods now, blended finance, jet peas, etc. None of these are working. None of these are anywhere near the quantities of money and finance that we need, which Kevin already identified. The problem is that all of these proposals really involve taking on more debt. And as Ndongo has identified, you know, it's not necessarily a great thing for you to take on more debt because you will be periodically caught in these debt cycles and these crashes. And it will be devastating for your people. And it will also be bad for nature and the planet in your own country. So what do we have to do? Well, first, I I would argue that basically there are three Things that the global majority countries can do to cope with what we know is an unequal world order which is not getting suddenly more equal anytime soon first of all we have to create conditions for combining and cooperation from debtor countries from low-income countries on different issues like taxation as well why is that because you know unless you're system- systemically important the creditor community is not going to bother. They will let you fester for years and years and years, as Kevin showed you, you know, can go on for more than a decade. If they think you're systemically important, they can do this over a weekend, they can do it overnight, as they did with Silicon Valley Bank and Syndicate Valley Bank in the US. They can break all their own rules and they can, you know, stop at nothing to make sure that that survives, as they did with Credit Suisse in Switzerland. So basically, you have to be systemically important. These countries on their own are not. But together, they are a powerful force, not just in terms of the volume of debt, but in terms of the kinds of resources that exist in their own territories. And so the combination is something that can be very potent if they actually do get together. We also need cooperation on taxing because uh, Dongo was identifying the royalty payments and, and, the, and the tax payments and so on. But essentially, the taxation of multinationals, because of the crazy global system we have, which is the, you know, created 100 years ago when there were no multinationals, this enables a huge amount of tax avoidance by multinationals, perfectly legal tax avoidance. You shift all your profits to a relatively low tax jurisdiction. You say that, oh, all the intellectual property is held there. Everything's held there. So all those profits really belong in Ireland or the Seychelles or Liechtenstein or some all. Uh, Delaware in the US. And, you know, I, I may be making a lot of sales uh, in your country, or I may be extracting a lot of minerals and other things from your country, but the profits are all made there. So I don't have to pay much tax here. This can be changed by having a system of unitary taxation where you treat the multinational company as one. And you say, I'm going to tax you my share of your global profits, depending on your the sales, employment and production. That you have in my country. It's a very simple idea. It can be done. That's the system they implement in the U.S. because the states all have taxing rights as well. But of course, the rich countries which are pushed by their own multinational companies have tended to water down these. Once again, this can be done if a whole bunch of developing countries get together. And therefore, I think Uniting, definitely we need major social movements and political mobilization in the North of right-thinking people because this benefits no one except these big companies. But we also need this combination of debtor countries and people in debtor countries for taxing rights for a better deal on debt. And broadly, I would say, we also have to learn to avoid getting into external debt situations, unless it's absolutely necessary, unless it's foreign exchange that you simply cannot earn any other way. I would argue that also foreign direct investment, as Ndongo has very graphically shown you, has to be looked at with many buckets of salt in terms of what are the net gains for that economy. And it's only under those conditions that you should get into it, because otherwise you're just asking for getting out of one trap to walk into another one. Okay,
0: let me stop here. Thank you. Jayati. thanks very much. And I think that was a a really good way to bring together all three talks. Now, we want to start our Q&A, and I'd love to start with students in the room. Michael, can you encourage people to come down and ask a question? If you need to ask a question.
4: If you need to ask a question, move to the queue and, and just queue up, and then you come to the microphone.
0: You can do it.
5: <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure.
4: Yes. Um, hi, can you see me or hear me at least? Okay. So, my question is about uh, the relevance of the de- dependency theory in, in in that crisis we're talking about. And, um, and whether uh, industrial upgrading would be the solution. And also, I understand that when it comes to that, there's a huge um, climate, environmental concern as well. Um, we've seen like, um, you know, um, manufacturing industry, how that is very sort of pollutive. I'm just wondering like, how do we solve the problem if dependency theory matters and uh, industrial upgrading matters?
0: Thank you. Maybe we can take uh, a few questions is there anybody online who has a question to ask?
4: Uh, I see
0: Valentina. Hello. OK. Um. Hello. Yes. Uh,
2: so I wanted to ask, so how do you think that the increasing inclusion of
0: common people in financial investments is going to affect future efforts to create a common framework for debt restructuring? Uh, Given that new uh, instruments
2: such as the passive mutual funds are making it cheaper and easier for common people to invest. How do you think this is going to affect any further attempts?
0: Okay, maybe one more question if we have it. Let's see. um, Anybody posted in the chat? No. In the room? On the screen? Okay, while you think of your further questions, why don't we first address these two, Uh, and who who would like to go first talking about the relevance of dependency theory? Jayati.
2: Yeah, you know, I think that was a really smart question. I I mean, I think all three of us have kind of suggested that dependency theory is very, very relevant, right, even in the current context. But then is the solution, as you were saying, is the solution then to do your own industrialization? Well, yes, sure, that is a goal. There's no question about it that Moving up the value-added chain is what development is all about. It could be through modern industry. It could be through other, you know, high value-added activities and so on. The problem is that these are less and less employment generating. So the old path, the old path where you moved from agriculture to industry to services and you've shifted people along with, you know, production, that path is no longer quite the same. I believe industrialization is still essential and manufacturing is still essential because it has major synergies. it has it involves learning, it you know it's it's critical. You can't skip that phase. I mean India tried it and look where we ended up. We're in bad shape as a result. But um, it's not enough for employment generation and especially if you have dualistic economies with large numbers of people in very low value-added activities, you can't hope to do that through industrialization, you have to do other things. And I believe therefore that you have to have a strategy that at one level, yes, emphasizes upgrading and also emphasizes getting the fair value for whatever you're exporting. Because remember many critical minerals, Mm -hmm. the past critical minerals, as well as the new ones are now the most current uh, arena for grabbing, right? And, And so you have to make sure that you're getting The best possible deal out of those. Indonesia with nickel is a kind of interesting example where they demanded that it would have to be processed within the country uh, and that they banned the export of raw nickel and so on. But in addition, you have to invest in the care and creative industries because it gives you a better quality of life, but also because it generates employment. And these are not activities that will be Uh, these are not activities that are so badly affected by new technologies that they don't generate employment. They will always require people. And that's, uh, I think, therefore it requires a new development strategy, not the one that we've been used to talking about the whole of the 20th century. And I think that um, what that means is that to avoid dependency, you have to avoid listening to both the international financial institutions and the Davos crowd etc who are asking you to follow that earlier route because that route isn't available anymore. I mean let's face it China has kind of more or less been there done that and cornered that market. So you have to think of ways of doing this which are feasible in relatively small countries or in regions that will involve upgrading but also involve employment generation. Okay On the issue of people being invested in pension funds, yeah, it's a critical one. I don't know, Kevin, you might have a better way of addressing
0: that. Just before Kevin, uh, Ndongo, would you like to come? Yeah, I I, I
3: agree with all what uh, Jayati said. Uh, I would just add maybe a provocative note in the sense that, well, uh, could we have green industrialization for the whole world? I'm not sure. I think that if you want to go to a green world, uh, we need you know, a kind of a degrowth. I know the concept is uh, polemical, etc., but there should be some ways that the global North will reduce its uh, consumption of uh, you know, of, of material, I think, mm-hmm. if you want to go to, towards a, a fair world. Uh, because the Northern, uh, I mean, ways of life, I mean, it's not about individuals, the households. But the way the uh, productive systems, you know, are are, are designed too uh, intensive in terms of resource use. And obviously, if that pattern of production uh, was to continue, I mean, uh, well, maybe uh, how uh, the life expectancy of the planet, well, will be very short. So that means that we need other kind of, um, I mean, global systematic, change in the way production is organized and this is beyond uh, initialization per se in some different places
1: Kevin Thank, Thank you James well look they they were both um great questions and and actually it's it's tough to do justice to both of them um on the first point look I I think we re- we need to rethink dependency Theory but I think it remains profoundly relevant. And if you think of the green transition, the global green transition, you know, what's the basic story that's going on at the moment? And the basic story that's going on is that international climate finance is increasingly concentrated in rich countries and China to to some degree. You know, this is where the new solar industries are emerging the new hydrogen industries you know the big um turbine developments and so on and where are the resources coming that those industries rely on the cobalt principally from africa um the lithium principally from um, the uh, andean countries Uh, nickel as Giati has already mentioned from um from in Indonesia, so there, you know, I think there is a danger that we drive a green transition in rich countries by extracting and transferring value from poor countries and not building the industries that could could be developed. Um, personally, I I don't think this is a degrowth story. I mean, we uh, uh, it's it's a longer debate. I think it depends on what we mean by growth. You know, if we measure growth by conventional GDP indicators, yes, we need less of that. But what we don't need less of is some of the advantages that can come with improved productivity. I I thought the question on mutual funds was really fantastic. You know, because if I could just tell a personal anecdote, I remember actually, this was around the time I first met um, James, and neither of us had white hair at the time. <laughs> um, but I, you know, I remember trying to get on top of the of the debt issue, just so that I could understand it well. And uh, you know, I distinctly remember going to Washington and sitting in an office in the IMF and having it explained to me by somebody called Anthony Boot, who was the IMF's head of debt at the time. You know, just how the thing worked. And he sat there with a straight face and he said to me, Well, you know, basically happen what happens is we give countries money, and the World Bank then transfers them resources through IDA so that they can repay us. And you know, and like the entire setup was so crazy and dehumanized. That when you ask basic questions like, you know, but how comes this transfers more money out of the country than it's able to spend immunizing its children or educating people or building an infrastructure for self reliant growth? And they would look at you blankly as though you just dropped in from planet Mars and didn't understand the complexity of financial engineering. Now, I think what the questioner asked goes to the heart of this, right, because these guys who are buying the bonds, the Lazards, your Goldman Sachs, uh, BlackRock especially, they're using our pension fund, or they, they're using people's pension funds. This is your money. It, you know, it's the majority's money. And I think in the same way that in the earlier campaign, we were able to turn debt into a human issue, yeah, that wasn't just about the debt to GDP ratios and that sort of stuff. It was a human issue. We we need to turn this debt story into a climate issue in a way that I don't think we've managed to do at the moment. So I think there's a huge opportunity there. You know, it's a longer discussion, I know, but there there are big opportunities.
0: You know, in the worst cases, um, in 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 the in the late nineteen eighties and going into the nineties, that the the debt burden was so crippling on states that that some would argue that it contributed very much to the breakdown, the collapse of states and, and the violence that that was seen. And Ndongo, perhaps you might want to comment on whether or not you see the possibilities of that recurring as as the stress grows. Uh, deeper and more extensive not to mention the stress that's added on states because of climate change with drought displacement of people etc um, do we have questions in the in the room before anybody tries to answer me yes
4: that's we have awesome. three people waiting to ask questions. very
0: good so please ask your questions
5: hi james <laughs> hi um <laughs> I want to provoke a bit because um when we talk about debt forgiveness, um we seem to forget some sometimes that actually under Hippic there was a huge forgiveness. It was not only rescheduling, in my view. And somehow uh, this does not change Boeing behavior post-forgiveness, right? So there's a huge incentive problem as well that the Jubilee campaign, for example, did not address. And um the the question now is. Um, how do we actually see? Uh, how can we spur changes in incentive behavior? And I'm not only talking about unaccountable government, but this also includes the donor industry in itself, where where actually you feel like that the whole industry in itself is benef- benefiting from the structure how it is now. I'm not saying the 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 people on the ground, and so related to this, the argument uh, Kevin made about we need to change the the uh, the idea from human. To climate now, I don't, I don't know. It was human under UBLA, and it didn't change anything. So I don't know if climate gonna change something unless we're gonna we 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 address the whole, you know, maybe donor development lending system in itself.
0: Tom um, Henry, thank you. Good question.
5: Uh,
0: next question from the room, please.
4: Hello. Uh, I have two questions. So the first one is that we already discussed a lot about the debt and the need to uh, debt relief. However, a lot of discussions are now going into the whole idea of carbon taxation that will impact primarily developing countries and their products. So while debt relief is one side of the story, you're going to also tax a lot of those products that going to result in much more like impact on the developing countries. So what's your take on that?
0: And the second, second thing. Yeah, go ahead. Which
4: is, I think, in one of the graphs that Andango has mentioned, is that how, like, during debt um, times, growth was low, but then, like, later on, growth, growth was better. So, while only taking the bad side of debt, did that in any point result in better growth opportunities for developing countries?
0: Okay. Very good. Yeah.
4: Another question?
6: Yes.
0: Mm-hmm. One more this round. Yeah.
6: Um yeah that would be to come back uh, on uh, what Ndongo talked about uh, regarding like the the outflows of uh, of uh, value towards like foreign private investors so um my question was uh, does the so the national physical and technical control over export uh, that you recommend for Africa being able to retain the value uh, it extracts from its resources does that mean uh, nationalization of export industries uh, because for example uh, in the case of uh, copper in zambia um, is, nas- is nationalization the the main option to stop these uh, massive value outflows towards foreign private investors because Uh, right after the independence we've seen uh, attempts of nationalizing those uh, export export sectors and uh, most of them especially for example peanut industry in senegal or uh, cobalt industry in DRC most of those attempts uh, failed uh, to sustain growth so that was my my question
0: yeah thank you so who would like to go first Ndongo
3: okay uh, thank you for this uh, all these questions Uh, well for me the debt, the current debt crisis is different uh, uh, from let's say the one that started after the end of 1970s. why? because in the case of Africa as was reminded by uh, 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 someone from, the, from from the public, uh, most of these countries they uh, was they were granted debt forgiveness and in the case of Zambia we saw that this is was, this was really significant. Not only that, they had also a supper commodity cycle. That means that it was favorable for them. They should have accumulated foreign exchange. And not only that, they also issued euro bonds, etc, uh, heavy heavy amounts of debt in foreign currency. Uh, but in a matter of years, some of them went into debt distress. This is not the scenario of the 1970s, not at all. So what happened? What happened is that during the commodity boom, they did not accumulate foreign exchange and partly to to um, plug the holes if i could uh, say it like this they issued eurobonds but eurobonds at very high interest rates you see but the debt in itself is not bad but the thing is the debt was not invested into activities into projects that could have generated the, the foreign exchange that mean the us dollars for example, in many countries, including mine, our governments they issue eurobonds, but these eurobonds they use it to pay past eurobonds, you know, <laughs> service, and they also use it to finance uh, PPP project, uh, public private partnership project in infrastructure. The thing is, this project might be highly uh, profitable in, in, in domestic currency, but they do not generate the US dollars. So that means that uh, to service the debt the foreign debt associated with this project, you have to rely on your traditional sources of foreign income. If you have a shock on your traditional sources of income, you are in debt distress. That's how you could explain what happened in many countries in Africa, that they have very favorable conditions, but the first shock coming, they were not resilient because they did not accumulate enough foreign exchange and the debt they took uh, was not invested in projects that would have generated the US dollars. That's why it's different from what happened uh, at the end of the the 1970s. So so for me, the foreign debt is not bad at all. And as Jayati said, most of the rich countries, they are heavily indebted, but in their own foreign currency. And they have very low interest rates. And sometimes their debt is held by their own central bank. That's the case of Japan. That's the case of Sweden. Something like 40% of all the foreign debt is controlled by the central bank. It is monetary sovereignty. But when you have debt in in foreign currencies, this is dangerous. So you have to make sure that this debt could service itself in the sense that it could be invested into activities that will generate not domestic currency, but hard currency. Otherwise, you expose yourself to to debt distress. And that has been the pattern in in most uh, uh, Mm -hmm. African countries. So nationalization, why not? The thing is, for example, in Libya, I, I like this example because Libya is an oil-producing country like Angola and others. Libya had no debt at all because Libya uh, um, accumulated enough foreign exchange, and Hadi, uh, Gaddafi, whatever Gaddafi, whatever we might think of him, he uh, used to convert his U.S. dollar assets into gold because he de- didn't want his, you know, you know his uh, foreign exchange to be seized, U.S. U.S. dollar foreign mm-hmm. exchange to be seized, or converted into gold. But you have Angola. Angola, you know, is yeah ha- have been going through many difficult problems, and most of its debt is uh, uh, you know is held by China, etc. You see, so that means that if these countries uh, use well their resources, and um, for me, nationalization does not necessarily mean appropriation, but that means that even having technical control in in in, in French speaking countries, for example, in Central Africa, like Gabon, like uh, Congo, uh, uh, Congo Republic. You know the French oil company, it's a public company. Declared the volume, declared the quality, declared the prices, etc., and with no te- with no control whatsoever from the national government because they don't have the capacity. And there were a huge, you know, uh, uh, oil theft organized by these companies. So you, if you have a better control on that technical control, and also on the fiscal side, you could also control on that. Uh, this will increase your capacity to finance your imports that you need for your own development. And this will lessen the need to issue debt in foreign currency. That's that, that that's my point. But I'm not saying that the foreign debt is bad. If you could uh, use it to invest in projects that will generate U.S. dollars, it's fine.
0: I suppose we also have to consider the international system that forces countries to issue debt in foreign currency rather than their own currency on the one hand and also a bank international fund, a banking system, which is getting no returns when, but, when, but, after but, uh, the financial crisis, from you, from from, from you, sovereign you, debt and the in the rich countries being perfectly willing to you know to to lend helter skelter to sub-Saharan African countries. So, I mean, I'm not I'm not opposing what you're saying about responsibility for developmental action on the part of developing country governments. But nevertheless you know we
3: should consider that i i agree but the thing is the difference sometimes between debt in domestic currency and foreign currency is not that relevant for example if you have a uh you know you have liberalized capital controls and you allow investors to buy the uh you know uh, government bonds uh, it's just an investment that means that at one point you will have to have the foreign exchange to allow you know, the capital to exit. Recently, I was discussing with a central banker in Ghana. They told me, well, if you have one dollar $1 that is invested in your economy to buy the government bonds, you had at least a provision for $2. And that's what they have been doing. So it's not necessarily a good deal. Yeah, I,
2: yeah, I completely agree with uh, what Nongo just said. You know, I mean, I think part of the whole problem is that you look at what the IFI responses are. If whatever debt relief is provided is only to get into more debt without any kind of perception of what is the final game plan. At the same time, this is an international architecture that doesn't allow basic taxation. So developing countries are losing $270, $370 billion a year through all of this illicit financial flows which are enabled by the system and by institutions in the rich countries. So, you know, I, people, that, there was a question asked about dependency theory, right? I mean, this is what, what more do you want in terms of evidence of that kind of dependency? But, you know, I have to say, I'm so impressed at the quality of these questions. They're so thoughtful. I think it was Henry, right? Who said, look, debt relief doesn't eliminate the problem. Um, yeah, it doesn't eliminate the problem. Um, but on the other hand, not doing it is a, a massive, I mean, it actually condemns that, it, it doesn't get rid of it because you could be back in a debt cycle, but not doing it means really condemning to, as Kevin was saying, several decades of loss, which involves human tragedies on a very significant scale because we're talking about relatively poor countries. So what do you have to do? You have to do a debt relief that is real and then not immediately use that, say, to say, oh, now you can go back and enter capital markets as if that's the way to proceed. You know, I mean, Argentina is a classic example. When it had managed to uh, somehow address all that huge problem and get significant write-offs, it was there was one holdout creditor who prevented it from accessing the capital markets. That is a period when Argentina did really well. It actually had low uh, unemployment fairly rapid growth. It was operating on its current account receipts and it did rather well. And it had much greater autonomy in a, of a policy space. Then you get Macri coming in who does a deal with that creditor and then once again gets into huge debt and they're back into the rabbit hole. So it's, you know, I, I mean, there is this pattern that the IMF, et cetera, don't seem to see is what they're encouraging. Oh, they probably see it, but they don't want to do it. There was a wonderful question on the carbon tax. I have to say, I fight with so many people who are green progressives or whatever. The carbon tax sucks. It's a protectionist device that does nothing for actually making uh, a genuine, just green transition possible. It's really a way of ensuring that the rich countries capture the technologies for green production even as they continue to exploit the developing countries for the elements that would go into those technologies. Nationalization is not a solution. Yeah, this is, you know, this goes, this takes me back to Kenneth Kaunda. You remember, famously, he said, Kevin, you will remember that the only thing worse than being exploited by a multinational is not being exploited by a multinational. And that that has to do with the fact that global markets are stacked against you. Or let me put it this way. They used to be stacked against you. I think the nice thing about this century is actually that all this is changing, that there are so many, the the fragmentation that so worries the IMF, the geopolitical dissolution creates many different opportunities. I mean, look at the way Russia has managed to evade the Western sanctions. It's you know, basically, the 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 very strict order that was imposed by the core capitalist countries, that's no longer valid. So it's no longer the case that if you nationalize, you will be punished in external markets, because there are many different kinds of markets now.
1: Very um, good. Well, look, just to repeat what um, Jayati and Donga and said, uh, the, these are really such good questions and uh, you know so a really big thank you to all the students mm-hmm. for for raising them and i i think it's great actually that thomas started by asking a tough question because you know to a lot of people it's not self-evident that debt relief is a good idea and you know you often hear in dialogue that people will say well you know we, it, it's it's only 2006, that we had HIPPIC, you know, where we wrote off $110 billion worth of debt, and here we are again. And so, you know, don't tell us debt relief is a solution to the problem. And that, and that's an argument you, you very commonly hear. And my response to it w- would be this, which is, first of all, that HIPPIC made a huge difference. I mean if you look at the levels of investment that went into health and education after hippic it, you know it was a really fundamental change i mean just to give you one example uganda when it got hippic like literally the month it got hippic it abolished user fees in education it used the savings from hippic to abolish charges for primary education so, you know, I mean, debt relief on its own is clearly not a sufficient condition to get on a on the right development trajectory. But I would say unsustainable debt is a condition that will prevent that trajectory from happening. On what happened after HIPPIC, you know, I broadly agree with Ndongo that, it, you know, essentially what governments were doing were taking on hard currency, liabilities Uh, you know let's speak bluntly in many cases a completely crazy interest rates eight percent nine percent for senegal and other countries and there was a huge risk that if you know if the super cycle tanked as it was going to at some point it it was going to lead to another debt crisis and that's and that's what's happened but you know, why did governments go to Eurobond markets? And the answer that, to that is partly because there wasn't sufficient financing on the right terms in the multilateral system to make those investments affordable. So you know, we had a dysfunctional multilateral development bank system, which is being being addressed to some degree now, which contributed, I would say. Um, to the to the the to the debt crisis. So you, I, I think you know you really can't um, you really can't separate these things out. Um, carbon tax, ta- uh, you know, has already met, referred to the carbon taxation issue, so I'm I'm not going to cover that. But I will make one final point. Take a country like Ghana, which as a condition for getting any sort of support from the IMF in this recent program, was required to restructure domestic debt. It's still sitting on this huge eurobond debt. So the IMF is now pumping money into Ghana. Where does anybody think that money is going? Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you think this is going into you know a potentially viable solar industry in Ghana? Yeah, no that money is coming straight back out of Ghana into BlackRock and the other actors that I mentioned. So effectively, you've got international public finance, which is transferring resources to private money markets. And you know, this is a classic story yeah. of capitalism, right? Like these guys love to talk about the virtues of the free market until it comes to their own self-interest when they want to socialize the risk of the free market. And that's precisely what's happening right now.
0: Thank you, Kevin. Um, Do we have more questions from the room?
4: Yes, we have. Yeah, okay,
0: just just before I turn to you, Michael, hold on. Uh, We have one question from Deepa Patel, which um, I think is, and we have two questions in the chat. One is, what is China's role in the energy transition in Africa, and could this be a solution? Perhaps thinking about China's own role in lending um, to to Africa. And then we have a second question from Naima Kane. Do you want to read out your question, Naima?
6: Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, So my question was, what are your thoughts on the emerging concept of sustainable or green industrialization? Sort of piggybacking off of the last question on industrialization as sort of a way to leapfrog. Um, It sort of proposes a new development model where you promote reconciling industrial goals with domestic job creation through targeting green sectors that can innovate local decarbonization methods and environmental resilience opportunities in developing countries.
0: Very good question, something I'm going to be lecturing on in a few weeks time. From the room, please. Okay.
5: Hi, Uh, so you kind of
0: touched upon this, Kevin, in your answers, but in your presentation, you said we needed to name and identify the big actors such as JP Morgan or Blackrock and so on who buy sovereign bonds or Glencore. And I was wondering, how can we incentivize them to change their actions and behaviors? So, um, I mean, Jayet, you kind of relatedly talked about a unitary taxation system, but I was wondering if you could go more into this. And ultimately, I'm just wondering what role could these huge financial actors, who we which we tend to demonize in development studies, uh, play in a newly structured uh, debt system? Thank you. Thank you very much. Can we have the other questions from the room, just so that students have a chance to ask them, and then the speakers can answer which ones they would like. How's that?
2: Um, hello, thank you so much for this discussion. Um, I just wanted to ask, like, what role could a potential loss and damage fund play, and um, how we can sort of galvanize support for climate reparations more, more broadly? Thank you.
0: Very yes, good. So we have
4: one more question okay uh, and I also have a question so if you let me ask it
0: yes okay two more from the room go ahead
6: hello um thank you very much um I have two questions but before I would like to break a spear as we say in Spanish um uh, he he big the quality of the policies didn't really improve after it. So I think it was a very good contribution to point it out and to understand that that relief, it's not sufficient, although it might be very much needed. Um, I have two questions. One is about uh, non-resource rich countries. Um, uh, what about them in the story? And second, and it's been uh, asked and and kind of answered, but what about industrial policy and green Uh, industries and the role that China uh, plays in all of that, um, particularly through uh, channeling uh, FDI. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Pablo. Uh, Michael. Okay,
4: so uh, my question is, I mean, picks up on some of the points that were made by Jati and Kevin. I think towards your conclusions, you, you made this very strong proposition of developing countries coming together and mobilizing around and advocating for restructuring of the debt system. But on the other hand, I think Kevin did mention that, you know, for instance, uh, Ruto's uh, submission during the Paris, I think Paris climate summit in a sense triggered a kind of, you know, this reaction from uh, the credit rating organizations in a sense of pushing their basis points up. So the question is, I mean, if, these organizations have this enormous holding power to really discipline developing countries Mm. uh, in terms of, you know, mobilizing collectively to, you know, to advocate for restructuring of of the debt system. I mean, how possible then is there, I mean, what capacity do they really have to come together uh, in, in, in the face of this, you know, the capacity to actually get punished if this, for example. Make propositions that run counter to a system which has been established obviously to sustain as we have established here, uh the, you know, a, a structure that facilitates continuous extraction of value from developing countries.
0: Very good, thank you. What a challenging set of questions. <laughs> I'm turning to my speakers. Ndongo, would you like to go first?
3: Okay, uh, thank you. Yeah, these are really challenging questions. Um I might talk about the question regarding industrial policy, green industrial policy. Uh, About the role of China, I'm not sure because I have not done any investigation yet on it. Uh, uh, But uh, the recent trends had been that China has been uh, lending less to African countries due to the debt distress, and I think this is also uh, normal behavior given that they have been overexposed to uh, companies or governments that might be uh, that might lack solvency. Uh, the uh, push towards green industrial policies uh, have come forward with uh, the conflict opposing Russia and Ukraine. Germany has tried to say that, well, I would like to dealing from Russian facial fools and uh, we need uh, to have uh, access to green energy. And the type of green energy they elected is what they call green hydrogen. That means hydrogen uh, being produced using renewable renewable sources of energy. And I have been following that with uh, Daniela Gabor and there is a country in Africa, Namibia, which offers the most ideal condition for uh, the production of green energy. Uh, What is uh, interesting economically speaking is not the green energy in itself, but derivative products like ammonia that could be shipped to Europe, et cetera. But the thing is this type of green industrial policy coming from Germany, et cetera, and being somehow cooperating with its former colony, Namibia, it's a new form of colonialism in the sense that it happens within a framework of monetary dominance. That means that uh, the state Uh, should tie its hand, it could spend only for the benefit of foreign capital, private foreign capital. And that means that these countries will go into foreign debt. Uh, For example, they created an investment vehicle named Namibia one, but for the government to participate, they have to take huge debt. Uh, But everything will be controlled by the German companies and the German government, in the sense that uh, the investment choices, everything. Uh, Namibia will only be a kind of a producer of a, a, a green commodity, but everything will be controlled uh, by the by by the, by the German companies. And at the same time, you have more debt, and you are under the framework of uh, fiscal conservative monetary dominance. That's what we call uh, uh, de-risking developmentalism because superficially it's about industrial policy. It's about development mm-hmm. uh, for, you know, creating green industries, etc. But the countries will end up just being green uh, 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 exporters of green commodities, and there will be also a critical allocative choices that remind us of colonialism in the sense that they will allocate huge amounts of land, huge amounts of water, just to uh, you know create you know uh, green hydrogen, while the energy could have used for their own domestic purpose, the land could have used, for example, for their own agricultural uh, production, etc. So this is the type of emerging pattern you could see in Namibia, you could also see in Morocco and in North Africa. And uh, some of our cameras, they talk about uh, energy colonialism, and that has been what we have been seeing. So from the perspective of countries like Germany, it's green industrial policy, but from the perspective of the global south, it's green colonialism. But uh, it's up to countries of the global south to try to organize differently in a way that they could uh i mean uh have industrial policies that will be beneficial to them and that will not involve land grabs or water grabs etc
1: kevin thank you and dongo um you, you know i've actually decided to sign up for this uh, master's course because <laughs> i mean the students yes. are asking such super interesting questions um Look, uh, I, I'm going to just do rapid fire on a couple of points, James. So mm-hmm. first of all, on the proposition that policies didn't improve after HIPPIC, I just think this is wrong. Yeah. You know, look, I mean, if you look at the history of World Bank structural adjustment policies in Africa um, from the early 80s through the period up to HIPIC they were a disaster. They were a disaster for growth. They were a disaster for human development. They were driven by whatever neoliberal fads were doing the rounds at the time. You know, one minute, it was to set up grain marketing boards. Next minute, it was to liberalise grain marketing boards. One minute, it was to promote industries. Next minute, it was to open capital accounts and liberalise. And, you know, I so i think it's not right to say the policy environment was better and actually even if you look at um, imf regional reports on africa they systematically argue that fiscal policy improved dramatically after hipic i mean we've now had this new debt crisis which has created new stresses and strains but uh, you know I, I i don't think that proposition is right second point on leapfrogging so, actually, the World Bank did, Jati, um, uh, you might remember this, one of their world development reports on technology, where the bank presented it as what they thought was a novel idea of the idea of leapfrogging, that poor countries could embrace the technologies of wealthier countries, implant them, and then they were going to take off. And actually, it wasn't an original idea at all, because Trotsky actually set out precisely the same argument in a book called 1905, where he explained that Russia was attempting to import uh, French and German technologies and implant them in a feudal infrastructure, and it was doomed to failure. Now, you know, there's limits to that analogy. But I think the the simple idea of leapfrogging, if you divorce it from the political economy of how do you absorb and adapt and innovate the technologies that are being adopted, which does require a green industrial policy, uh, I think is a a non-starter. On the subject of green industrialization, there's an organization called the Global Energy Alliance for People and Planet, which is doing really interesting work on the adaptation of, uh, of battery... Technologies and solar technologies, uh, grid-level solar technologies to low-income countries, and I think this is the sort of approach which, you know, if it's embedded in national industrial policy, ha- has the the potential to 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 you know to generate results. Um, the fi- final point, I think it was Michael that raised this point. So look, the, the role of these credit agencies really needs to be looked at. When the DSSI was, uh, was set up, Fitch, which is, the, I think, the second biggest credit rating agency, put out a statement saying any country that asks for DSSI treatment can anticipate automatically being put on a triple C rating. Like This is just by virtue. Of asking for a temporary suspension of debt. Now, you know, if that's the ethos of the credit rating system, it does close off policy options um, in Africa. Mm. The the final point I want to make, and I mean, this is maybe a controversial note to end on default is not always such a bad idea. Mm. Like, you know, you get this constant argument. De- you default, the money markets are going to punish you. Well, if the money markets are going to uh, are offering you 10% interest on bonds, wh- why why not default? I mean, Argentina has defaulted nine times yeah. since 2000. It doesn't stop bondholders going back to Argentina. So, you know, I would encourage African governments, whether individually or collectively, to seriously consider default as a viable part of a, of a debt reduction strategy. Thank you, Kevin. I liked your
0: radical note. Jayati, you get to have the last word here.
1: Oh my
2: goodness. You know, I agree with so much of everything that has been said, and yay, default. No, I mean, I I think Kevin is absolutely right. You look at the countries that have defaulted, many of them have actually done much better in the period when they were excluded from capital markets. This whole notion that the capital market is what you have to have in order to develop, industrialize, etc, cetera, etc, cetera, is very flawed. And the trouble is that, you know, it's one of those emperor has no clothes situations, that there's there too many powerful people who need to keep repeating that that is the only way to do it. And and so, yeah, um, I just want to, I mean, everything has been said, really, is fabulous questions. And you guys have given fabulous answers. So that that's all very convenient. I want to pick up on the loss and damage fund. You know. All these global funds, let's face it, I mean, everyone's response to anything is to say, let's have a global fund. Global funds work when there is a modicum of trust and legitimacy in the global system. And let's not pretend that there is, because there isn't. I mean, I've spent the last three years, you know, beating my head against the wall about effective multilateralism. There was a UN board that I was on. We were supposed to give ideas for making it effective and and so on. It's the current geopolitics is frankly not susceptible to that kind of a fund. Because let's face it, G7 and the rich countries in general have exposed themselves so badly during the COVID-19 pandemic, during the Ukraine war, and now in Gaza, that there is very little faith and trust in the rest of the world, in anything that they would suggest. It is so evident that they are operating not just entirely on their, in their own interest, but often in a very racist kind of uh, expression of their own interest, that very few of the global majority countries, even the ones who cozy up to them and have big handshakes and so on, like my own dear leader, et cetera, uh, very few of them actually trust them. And you, without that, you cannot really have a global fund. Who's going to administrate? Who's going to decide how much? Who gets what? So, And finally, none of them gets any money, really. Look, we've had the Poverty and Growth Reduction Trust. We've had the, res- what was it? Something in Sustainability, RST. Um, the one that was set up after the SDRs, you know, to use the SDRs for green transition, Resilience and Sustainability Trust. Uh, we have the, the Global Fund for AIDS. None of them gets any money. I mean, the rich countries got $420 billion of SDRs. They gave 26 billion for the RST. So, so, you know, I don't think, I mean, yes, it's good, the idea of the loss and damage fund is very good. I don't think it's going to really be large enough to make any impact. And the governance of it is always grabbed by the IFIs, right? The World Bank is controlling the loss and damage fund, and we all know where that's going to go. It's going to do public-private partnerships and blended finance with this money. Uh, So I think we have to think of other routes, I mean, you know, these are, these are the solutions that were possible and maybe even sensible at a time when the world was slightly different or global political economy was a bit different. Now, if you need something like this, I would say just go with IMF-SDRs, that, that instead of having a big issue and that everybody gets according to their quota, you have selective issues and there are clear criteria you've had a climate shock, you've had a terms of trade shock, you've had an interest rate shock, or you're under threat of one of these shocks, you get some SDRs. And nobody's sitting there asking you what you're going to do with it and how much interest are you going to pay and, and all of that kind of thing. It, it, it just comes and you deal with it. So let's say Pakistan has a flood. It loses $30 billion worth in the, in the flood, which we know it did. At least $10 billion in SDRs it should get. Instead of which, it has been for three years begging, pleading and working with the IMF to get two and a half billion dollars in return for which it has to impose electricity tariffs on the poorest people in Pakistan. So I think, you know, we have to think of different ways now of dealing with these problems instead of relying on the things that everybody immediately thinks to. The UN system loves funds, right? They're always okay. now there's a social protection fund. There's a something else fund and you've got a problem, create a fund. And then if it will just lie there, there will be a whole a bureaucracy associated with it. And that's it. It doesn't go anywhere. So we have to be much more creative in terms of the solutions we suggest now, I think. And final point on green industry and China's role. You know, I I don't think we should forget that it is entirely due to China's very, very proactive subsidizing of renewable energy that it is now competitive with the fossil fuels i mean globally the world has benefited from china doing that and i think we can continue to benefit apparently now they're developing batteries that don't even need lithium and they're, they're based on saline water or something great i say go ahead and do it and everybody if if these technologies are developed i think you know why should africa have to go through all of that pain. Today, there's a news article, I forget which country has banned the import of any cars that are not electric. Great. I mean, we can actually think of a development pattern that doesn't have to go through that same stages of extremely polluting, congesting, and, uh, you know, carbon-emitting strategies. But we can't be forced into it through these carbon taxes. It has to come through the possibility, I mean, look, decentralized renewable energy is the best option for Africa. And it is now affordable, but somebody has to go out there and make those investments because it's a lot of upfront investment required. After that, there is, it really pays for itself. At the moment, everybody's relying on the international financial system to do it, and they won't because, you know, that's not the kind of thing that private finance does. So this is a clear case for public finance. This is a clear case for a regional development bank to just say, what the hell? We're going to go out there and do solar energy for everywhere that we can find in Africa. So I think solutions are possible. I think it's not impossible. I think technology is changing very rapidly. Every country is seduced by green hydrogen. That's only relevant for very large scale capital intensive production. There's no reason why every country in the world has to produce green hydrogen. Mm -hmm. So let's think of the ways in which technology has evolved that will actually provide options for many, many different countries. And I, I do think that really, ultimately, because of China's role, a lot of those relative prices are changing in ways that create a lot of potential.
0: Thank you. Thank you. To all our speakers, in Dungo, Jayati, Kevin, I think that there's a very strong message that solutions are going to happen in politics and in the political realm in order to, to push something, some change. Private sector alone won't do it. It would be nice if this de- understanding of development could inform the international environmental movements um, uh, more deeply. But, as always, I want to thank you very much for joining in. Staying up so late, Jayati. <laughs> and thanks to everybody online and in the room